believe I'm recording. Okay. Let me, uh, let's open our time in prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this, this great day. And Lord, we are, again, so thankful for, Father, your forgiveness. And Father, that today as we would um, just embark in this continued uh, focus and study of this man, Peter, Father, that you have purposefully uh, called uh, to fulfill a mission for you. And Father, I just pray that this would be a time of reminder for us and exhortation. And we just give thanks and praise to you for the great privilege that we have, just as a body of believers, to be, again, in the fellowship of your word. And pray your spirit would lead now. In Jesus' name, amen. Luke chapter 22. Peter says, and Peter said to the man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And so Peter went out and wept bitterly. Luke chapter 22, verses 60 to 62. We, I used that verse as a key verse last week because I said if there was a transformational verse that we could pick for Peter, it may be that very verse. And what I want to focus on today is to help us unbundle, unpack, is what did he remember? Well, I'm going to give you one reminder for me. This was a, actually a funny story that happened this week. That because of my my response at times to any of the kids that might ask for something, I would just, sometimes I'll just say no without even any regard or thought about what they maybe they're asking for. So this week I learned that Danny and Jeff are going to buy a kayak. Okay? And of course I said, you are not buying a kayak, Danny. Kayak is, you know, what are you going to do with this kayak? And of course I'm just going at them with this thing and it's, no, Dad, we're gonna, I'm going to get the kayak. I'm going to get the kayak. Because they're going to go to the Apostle Islands, in fact. You know, I mean, geez, how more biblical can you get? <laughs> so, I was an absolute. Say, no, there's no way. But I was reminded. I was reminded by my beautiful soulmate. He said, hmm, I remember when you were 20 years old, no, you didn't have a kayak. You had a motorcycle. We're driving 70 miles an hour down the highway. And so I just wept bitterly. <laughs> I was broken. And within a couple minutes, I said, God bless you, Dan. Go get that kayak. I remembered. It's a silly reminder for us, but in, frankly, that is exactly, I believe, the situation what made us a transformational for Peter. And what we want to try to unpack is, what did he remember? Now, I'm going to fast forward for you for a minute, because I'm going to try to unpack this last question in, in there, which was this aspect of that we as believers have been ordained to suffer. And how do you reconcile this statement that suffering and glory meet with Christ? Suffering and glory meet at Christ. How do you reconcile that? Well, we're going to try to unpack it. Go ahead. You're exactly right. But you know what? If I asked that question to Peter in the Gospels, he wouldn't have given us that answer. In fact, he doesn't give us that answer from the heart until First Peter. Because if you were to look at and to summarize what is a really a key focus in First Peter, it's on suffering. It's a message of suffering that he addresses head on. And this truth 
where Christ, again, we as believers, Christ is this meeting of glory and suffering, and that we as believers are ordained as saints to suffer is a challenging thing to understand, if not to accept. Agreed? Well, because of this, because of that, and that's what kind of then moves on even to Second Peter, because what happens is, is because it is challenging for anyone to accept this truth of this suffering as a believer, that frankly, this is where we see false teachers that would come in. These false teachers would then provide for those, basically those warnings. And they would provide for ways that they would say, look, if you're looking for successes in life, here's the way you can do it. In other words, to counter that. You may have heard of this particular little model, right? I love that. No, I'm just kidding. Actually, it's used. It's actually used in uh, many of the exercise models and everything else. Um, but we all have seen this, and that's exactly what it represents to a degree. And yet, this in itself is somewhat challenging because what I'm going to try to look for is that what is the easiest way that I could avoid the pain and yet still gain? That really is what we tend to move towards. It's just our nature. And what we're going to get at as we start to look at some of these passages here is that that's what was some of the challenges, that for, even for our disciples, it, this truth that Christ was teaching them was challenging in itself and, frankly, at, on the onset, would reject it even. And so as we go through this thing, our focus today, as we go forward with Peter, as this author of the epistles, is that we want to contrast and look back at these older actions that we've seen throughout the Gospels, and I want to look specifically at how he addresses suffering in the Gospels. And then, in the months ahead, we start to see now Peter as the teacher, where he now presents the exhortation to the believers of the true perspective on suffering in Christ. This is this transformation that occurs. Those, in fact, if you think about it, it's the, Peter as this person who was rejecting suffering is now going to be the one that defends suffering. So, our objective, the same as last week, is to look at the experiences of Peter's life that transform him not only to this leader, but an effective teacher that we will start to look at. And we're going to look at a few passages. And our passages that we're going to look at in the Gospels, and then taking that forward into Acts uh, today, is going to look specifically at this focus on suffering and some of the transformational things. So I'd like you to go with me here and open up, first of all, to Matthew chapter 5. And I'm going to ask for a volunteer if they could read for us verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 5 on the Beatitudes. Can a volunteer? Thank you. Uh, 1 through 12. Thank you. Go ahead. Yes, please. Thank you. Stop at that point. We're, we're going to jump ahead on some things here. In that, these words that are recorded in Matthew seem to be some of the, really, the initial or first teachings of the Lord's publicly. And at the onset of his ministry, and one of the things that immediately occurs is that it's in contrast to those of the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. 
Now I want you to look specifically with me as to what is that contrast. And in general, if you look at the last few verses of the, the, the Beatitudes there, it immediately starts jumping into in verse 10 that those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. And then it's this rejoicing. So the things that Judaism viewed as blessed were in fact those that Jesus called. Excuse me, that were not called blessed, Jesus called blessed. Okay? Now, how do we know that? And I want you to look, this is very interesting, it's if you have your Bibles open, I want you to just follow along, I'm going to, I want you to, I'm going to read a verse, and then you look at the, the, what happens in the following. I'm going to start with verse 17. In verse 17, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For surely I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, that one jot of little tittle comes. It says, Do not think that I came. Now let's just stop with this first thing where it says, Do not, do not think. Do not think that what? What is the basis of their thinking? It's, it's right. It's like, well, Do you think? They are already have a basis of perspective, and he is saying, do not think this. Okay. Now, it goes on. Here's some more examples. Look at 21. You have heard it, that. Okay. What's the first, first few verses of 22? But I say to you. Right? Okay, look at it again. You have heard that in verse 22, but I say to you. Jump down to 27. You have heard it, that. 28, but I say to you. Verse 31, furthermore, it has been said, verse 32, but I say to you, do you see what is happening there? What, what, what is, what's your takeaway on that? Yeah, he, it's a, basically, it's a direct contrast to all that they, those that had come. And it says here that the multitudes had come, including his disciples in verse 1. It was read. So the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees was in contrast to what Jesus was teaching by that first instruction on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, you heard, but I say. You heard, but I say. Biking. Oh, we, exactly. Because what we're going to see a little later on, Jesus is going to sit down with his disciples and instruct them about the prophets, all of the scripture. He's going to take them through the whole map. But you're exactly right. It is based on the teaching that they had had, simply from the, those, the, the basis of those religious leaders themselves, those scribes and the Pharisees, it was, quote, gospel truth to them. And therefore, it was this contrast that began. Now, jump ahead, because that continues, that level of discourse, and that teaching, counter-teaching, co- contrasting. And if you go, slide over to verse uh, chapter 7 and verse... 28 and 29. Someone read those two verses. Chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. There's your proof, you see. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching, marveled because he was teaching the opposite of what those scribes, Pharisees, were teaching. Well, I mean, they, they themselves were teachers, interpreters of the law, they were scholars. And, in fact, the fact that they were very intelligent, educated themselves, is that a little later on, in Acts, 
these, in fact, they're going to, they're challenged by the fact that they see this transformed Peter and John, and they say, well, isn't he a Galilean and uneducated and untrained? It's the contrast, the opposite. And so therefore, that truth itself being contrasted. I present that because this is on the onset of the fact that there is this basis of teaching that is so ingrained in those, even those believers, that First Peter corrects and Second Peter corrects. It's the false teaching itself, right, Mark? I mean, that's just at the heart of it. Yeah, it's just interesting because I I wanted to build up to this. To that first and Peter, first Peter introduction in Second Peter, because even Second Peter, with a focus on the false teachers, where was it rooted at? And it roots back, literally, to all the way back here, where they see this. And the very fact itself is that it, it, it's this: how our nature is to avoid suffering. And so, therefore, if someone's got a message that's going to avoid suffering, I'll listen to it. Little pain for much gain. You would think is that on that itself, I, I'm reminded going back, it's like, well, what's going to, is that going to draw a crowd? That kind of a teaching, even? You, you know, it really is contrast. Mark? Yeah. If you even look at, like, these bullet points here, these last two especially, is that, again, this is Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, and it really now gets reversed because this is the teaching of Peter then in the epistles, and that is, is that righteousness, you know, who suffered were blessed. It's a message of, again, assurance to those who live righteously and suffer persecution that would come to glory. It is the very message that you see in Peter. What I, I appreciate so much is just, again, praise God for the transformational work of Spirit, you know, and that's what we see happening in Acts. But it's also so helpful for us to see the transition, the working of God in the lives of His at the time. And this is the value we have with Scripture. And it really serves as a reminder for us. Slide over now to chapter 10. I'm going to keep you in Matthew for a few uh, chapters here. Slide over to chapter 10. To a next section of passage, it says disciples were sent out. And immediately after Jesus gave instructions, He sent them out. Chapter 10, verses 5 to 15. And the question is, what was foretold about their ministry and the response of Peter? Now, sometime later, so I want to, first of all, start with the first couple of verses of 10. And it says, And when he had called his twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Stop at that point and just think on that, is that here... You have these groups of called disciples, and then he names them after, and he calls the first, and he says, now the names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter. So these apostles were given, immediately, they were given authority over unclean spirits and the power of the, to heal these kinds of diseases. Now, immediately after this, if you, turn, if you keep going, reading on, and if you look at the sections, now look what he says in verse 16. Now behold, behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay? Now, glance with me. I'm just jumping ahead, but I, I want to pull out from here these things. So, here's the first thing. I'm gonna, he gives them power and authority to heal. 
over these. And then he says, by the way, behold, I'm sending you out among sheep, among wolves. And then he says, but, 17, beware of men. They're going to deliver you up to councils. And you'll be brought before governors. Verse 21, now also, brother will deliver up brother to death. Verse 22, you will be hated for all my sake. Verse 23, when they persecute you. Not if. When they persecute you. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And he goes on from there, and then in the final, in verses 38 on down, and he does, and he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Immediately after Jesus foretold, what did he foretold? He foretold that this would be about suffering. If you identify with Christ, you will suffer. And he is foretelling that literally after he has empowered them, and then he gives them, when you read that passage, he says, all of these things, all of this suffering, you're going to encounter, and it says to take up your cross, suffering, and follow me. Now, what was the response in your Bible there? Right after verse 39, and what was Peter's response? Look hard. Where is it? I couldn't find it. There was no, no response. There was no response on Peter's part or any of the other disciples. Now, here's the way I look at it. They were just given all of this power. They were just given the power and authority, and now he's saying, all of this too? It's like, whoa. I, I get this, but this is what's going to happen to me? Boy, I don't know if I want that power and authority. There was no response. I mean, they, how could suffering and rejection come their way? I mean, they, they were at a time when they were given this authority. They were all excited about the chance they can go and start using this power. It was challenging for them to reconcile that, and so they just heard it, and yet, no response. Peter's confession. I actually gave you a couple of verses here, and I think originally in the handout I had nine, chapter 9 of Matthew or Luke, but... Since we're in in Matthew, you can just slide over to chapter 16 too. Sometimes I like to jump back and forth just because of the fact that you have some additional words and perspective that get added to these gospel messages. So Peter's confession and his correction. Now, Peter's confession in Matthew 16, verse 16, as we talked about last week, is that Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In itself, that confession was a landmark event. Essentially, what he was saying is that Jesus is the promised one. He's the one that's going to bring deliverance. He is the messenger. In fact, he is the message, period. Not only is the messenger itself coming, but he is the one. He is the message itself. Some of, the, some of the things about that very confession that are noteworthy is that it wasn't any resuscitation. It, wasn't a, it was a personal confession. And Peter's confession was somewhat partial. It was somewhat partial in that it was imperfect and it was somewhat tentative. And we know that because he was unable to fully recognize that very statement that he said. And the fact is, is that it was only because it was not of the flesh. It was of God. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
Well, some of the challenges was, was that they, in that statement, is that from a Peter's perspective, he could make this statement, even from a personal perspective, that Jesus was the Messiah, but not God. And especially not a suffering Messiah. <laughs> we know that it was somewhat doubted. And so, from Peter's correction, uh, confession and correction, why did Jesus command the disciples to be silent? And if you look at 1620 there, if you're reading on, after he makes this, this confession, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on this rock, Peter. And then he commands the disciples, in verse 20 of Matthew, he says, to tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Why? What are your thoughts on that? Silence. It's like getting the message and then without any instructions or any background in it, go out and start telling people about it. Because we know, and that's exactly right, Mick, you're right, sure, I think you hit it really well, is that the, the Jewish people themselves, I mean, they were chafing under domination of Rome at this point, and so they were simply looking more from a revolutionary standpoint, more of a messianic rule. Certainly not a message of suffering. That was quite the opposite. And so I believe at this point you're exactly right. It was for the purpose of further instruction and understanding. You needed the whole manual before they went out. In fact, if you look at this thing, verse 21 is significant because the infinitives that follow in verse 21 of Matthew are actually in Luke of 9.22 if you're following along there. In this calling it says... From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests, scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Well, okay, what are the four infinitives that we see here are pretty simple. We know that it was a message of suffering. And that timing of that before his greatness was completely manifest itself, involved in teaching, and in that he lists the things. He is to suffer many things. Rejection and persecution. Two, religious leadership of the Jews will reject him. Clearly, he's calling it out. In fact, he is saying that he was to suffer many things from, he's calling it out. Who is going to reject him? It is the elders and the chief priests and scribes. He will be killed and he will rise on the third day. Now, in what light did Peter see these things and how did Jesus respond? Let's look at 22 through 27. Someone can read that please 22 through 27 it's our answer what light did he see it in verse 20 it's end of 23 pardon you look at 23 really close Jesus Jesus gives that calls it right out he's looking at it from men and that in itself is a human point of view Jesus told Peter he saw things purely. Again, looking at that, he says, You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. This is our problem. Because we are looking at things through the lens of humanity, and not through a a godly, biblical perspective, for us as believers today even. And that is the, the challenge. Is that so often, in fact this harsh response, this harsh rebuke, so strong, literally calling it out, saying that he is even being a spokesperson for Satan. Because it's not of God, it's of man. It's of the flesh. In this case, of the adversary. Our next passage. Luke chapter 9. I want to go to Luke, if you could, because it helps us description-wise a little bit better. 
This is the transfiguration. So often when we look at the transfiguration, we, we talked last week about certainly the event, Peter's response to that. But I want you to look a little bit closer at this. That verses, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. In this transfiguration, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that, that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And he prayed the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decrease, which was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep. When they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Stop at that point. Responds later. This event, if we were to best word that describes it, it is a, an event of glory being revealed here. And in those days, what we see in here is that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all appeared in this glorious radiance, is what they said. Is it not a foretaste of the glory yet to come? Now, what were they talking about? What were Jesus, Moses, and Elijah talking about? They were speaking of his departure, his exodus. And in fact, more specifically, about his glorious death. Think about it. He is in a state of glory, in appearance, and what he's talking about is his death. Burial, his resurrection, and ascension. Here we see it. Is that this joining together of suffering, the suffering of Christ and glory. That transfiguration experience. So often we think of that and say, well, what was the teachable, teachable moment for Peter? Was that his immediate, his impulsive response coming down the mountain, he was more concerned about them being there than recognizing about what was happening there on the mount and what they were talking about. Moving on. Peter's declaration in his denial. Luke 22. Since we're in Luke there, we'll jump ahead to 22. Luke chapter 22, verses, beginning in verse 31. Someone read uh, verses 31-34. You've a little extra there. As oh, always, sorry. you're overachieving, Mary. As always, good, good job. <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, you did. I'll give you an A on that one. The Lord said, Simon, Simon. Okay, stop at that point. What's your, what's your thoughts immediately? Pardon? Okay. Much more about the attention. He got, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double named. What else? It's the old name. Okay? It's the old name because he then uses Peter a little bit later. Because he says, but I have, he says, but he says to Peter. See that in verse 34. But I tell you, Peter. Simon, Simon. Okay, now, a thought. Look Go reverse a little bit. Go a few verses back and take a look at verse 24. Now there was a dispute among them as to which of them would be considered the greatest. I love to scripture that you can simply just go back a few, you know, a few verses to say, give me the context into this very statement that Jesus makes. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you. What's your thoughts about that verse? 24. Same chapter. Power that he's had. Oh. I, and I don't, I'm not excited. No, no, I'm not. Did, did I happen to mention that I was in the inner three? 
that uh, was up on the mountain, Transfiguration. Right. That, and that's you, Simon was coming out. My question is, I don't know that, but was he, was he part of that? <laughs> there was this dispute that arose among them, it says, the disciples. I'm guessing it was him, because he's the leader. He's the spokesman. He's that impulsive one that said, I'm in charge. And so the fact is, is that Jesus would specifically call him on to say that he's going to be sifted by Satan. Now, just again, try to reconcile that. What we see is that Jesus is sovereignly using Satan's motive to serve for a greater purpose in the life of Peter. What does sifting mean? I, I need to jump in that and just get, get shaken up, get the lumps out. It, it's for the purpose of refinement itself. And so the things we learn about this, the things they predicted about Peter, is that what Jesus went on to say, the encouraging thing that Mary read in here, it said, I, I love this. When you read on it, it says here, we, Lord, I'm willing to do all of these things for you. But what has happened is, is Jesus said that he would fail but his faith would not. Praise God for that. Fail, but his faith would not. Jesus promises. Jesus promises to come to Peter's defense in the time of testing. Look at that. But I have prayed for you in verse 32. Jesus is clearly saying is that you're going to, I'm going to run you through the sifter to refine you, Peter, but I will pray for you. Faith should not fail. But when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Here is an initial exhortation. It was not about you, Peter. This dispute that you may have been a part of with the disciples itself, if you were not a part of it, why didn't you stop it? Either way, I don't know that answer. But clearly what we see here is this this encouragement, Peter. He He would fail, but his faith would not. Well, what principle is illustrated by Peter's denials of Christ? Couple, couple thoughts. This is the verse I think of right here. Think of the verse in 1 Corinthians. Where let, let him who thinks he stands take heed. What? what was, how to finish it for me? Lest he fall. Involuntary responses reveal our character, not planned responses. When you think about that, as sometimes, if you're especially like, a, like Peter, you respond in a, a situation, and it may have been literally this this statement that Jesus was making about the apostles themselves being on these thrones in the kingdom. Their response itself may have been purely self-centered, not of the things of God. Well, I inserted a little thing in here for a little extra credit. Okay, Is that one in your handouts, this question? No? Yeah, this was an afterthought. Peter remembered. And so often when we go, we try to find this bridging because what he remembered was, we always think about that what he remembered when he denied Christ was what? That Jesus said he would deny him, right? Isn't that what we always think about? All right, but I'm going to try to offer up something else. What else did he remember? And I want you to go back with me to Luke 22, verses 15 through 30. Luke 22. Verses 15-30. This is the Passover. Literally, hours before that denial. Okay, So, so often, we, when we again, we conclude that what he remembered in that passage was that he would deny Christ three times. I believe that that is true. But like for, it's everything else, though, that he remembered. And what were some of those things that he remembered? Well, 
The first thing was that in chapter 22, verse 15, when the hour had come, he sat down with the twelve apostles with him, and he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He was eager to meet with them before he suffered. Verses 17. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to him, saying, This is my body, given for you. Sacrifice. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 20. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Body and blood. These are terms of suffering. He remembered. Verses 16 to 18. He speaks of his separation. He says, I will not, says, I will not take this. I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He is speaking of his separation. And he tells them even of the persecution and the rejection in verses 21. He says, My betrayer is with me on the table. He said he told them of betrayal. You see, Christ. The message of Christ is suffering and glory meeting. And did he remember not only the fact that Jesus said, you would deny me three times, but did he remember sitting with Jesus at the Passover dinner and Jesus making these statements? Did it start to connect with him and click? So often when we're studying Scripture, the Holy Spirit all of a sudden gives us an understanding to something that we just went over before. Over and over and over before. And what I offer here is that I believe at this point that the Holy Spirit not only gave him an immediate flashback of understanding and remembering what Jesus said he would do, but to cause this weeping and this bitter weeping and repentance and change in 22 was also the fact is that seeing in reality the fact that he is now watching his Savior, go to the cross from a distance as he denied knowing Christ. Challenging. Peter's restoration. Moving quickly here. Oh boy. Peter's restoration. He took personal interest in Peter's restoration. In fact, in Luke chapter 22, verses 34, it said, The Lord has risen indeed, and he appeared to Simon. A personal interest. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve in 1 Corinthians. And after his resurrection, Jesus explained the relationship of suffering and glory in his ministry. This is the one I wanted you to look at. That goes back to the Marlene we were talking about earlier. If you look ahead at Luke chapter 24, verse 27. or Actually, it starts back up in 25. It says, Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ have to have suffered these things and to enter into glory. In other words, the Christ was intended to suffer into His glory. In beginning at Moses and all the prophets, He, Jesus, explained to them, the disciples, in all the Scriptures and the things concerning Himself. Cheryl, your point earlier was well stated because they needed all the instruction from Jesus. And here's that verse that supports that. Jesus sits down with them, gives them that instruction. And what is significant about his teaching is that they believed the prophets up to this point, they, the prophets themselves believed the full revelation of Christ, that it was ought not Christ to have suffered, because within the prophets themselves it was a message both of the, the King Messiah, 
but a message also of the suffering servant. Well, the transformation. We'll go through this in Acts. Open with me to Acts, and we're going to do a quick survey. I like to jump from chapter to chapter to chapter. So let's go to Acts chapter 1. I did the first one for you, which was what we see in the, in the recounting of this. We have this transformation that occurs. At the end of the Gospels, we find Peter. At the end of the Gospels, Peter is forgiven, he's restored, and the evidence of that restoration, that forgiveness, that manifests itself in the life of this man that wept bitterly, which was forever changed in his life, the evidence we see is now found in the books that follow, in Acts and in the first and second epistle of Peter's that we'll see in the weeks and months ahead. Peter declares that Jesus not only fulfilled the purposes of God in his death, burial, and resurrection, but the message in Acts we see is that he fulfilled it concerning his first coming as well. So in Acts 1, we see is that he moves. And I'm just going to pick out a couple of key words here that I like to just... They jump off the pages for me because it just speaks the verses that just starts off. Verse 15 of chapter 1. And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. So there he is again. Now he's the leader, but he's standing up and he's beginning now the message of Christ. And what follows in that is that he obviously replaces Judas with Matthias. In chapter 2, starting in... Verse 1, the days of Pentecost had fully come with one accord in one place that suddenly came the Son. So the, the Holy Spirit in Pentecost comes and now we see in verse 14, there he is, but Peter. Standing up with eleven, raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea and all, of men, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let them. So in chapter 2 here we have Peter now standing at Pentecost declaring this great power that Jesus, the Messiah, and the Israel leaders, Israel's leaders at that time that had rejected him. Chapter 3. It goes all the way through. Uh, well, chapter 2. Peter, verse 38. And Peter says to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized. And about 3,000 people came. Souls were added to them in verse 41. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the teaching. Here's the teaching. So now he's... Again, Peter has got this message of Christ. Chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, he sticks out. And he gave them to his attention, expecting to receive something from them. Peter says, silver and gold I do not have, but I do have, I, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he, Peter and John, they healed this lame man. Chapter 4, my favorite chapter in this one. He defies the Sanhedrin. And they... In chapter 4, verse 3, they laid hands on them and he put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So he gets imprisoned. And then verse 8, and Peter, there he is, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to the rulers of the people and elders of Israel, and he goes on and he's preaching to them. You know, I wonder, I wonder if Peter was carrying his sword anymore. What do you think? Nope. I don't think so. This is a man that is trusting in the sovereignty of God. He was no longer concerned about opposition and death. We see that. Verse 13, he says, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter, there he is, the boldness of Peter and John, and here it is, and they perceived that they were uneducated and untrained. They, were, they marveled at them. 
They're going, is this Peter? The guy we know? Uneducated? Untrained? <laughs> Amen to that. And this Chapter 5, he dealt with the hypocrisy of Ananias and Sapphira in, in verse 9. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed? So he, he addresses that head on. In verse 18, he gets imprisoned again. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in common prison. But at night, the angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of the light. And when they'd heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and they taught. Here he was. All that they said not to do, they did. Peter was this, obviously he was arrested, and now he wasn't off going and hiding from a distance that we saw the man in, in the Gospels, was he? He was literally the one that refused now to be silent, regardless of whether he was threatened or beaten, in more of a rejoicing perspective. Verses uh, chapter 8. The problem with Simon the magician in chapter 8, Peter heals, uh, deals with this problem of Simon the magician in Samaria. Chapter 9, he raises Dorcas from the dead and heals Ananias. Ananias, chapter 8, or 9, excuse me. That's verse 34. Peter said to him, uh, Ananias, Jesus Christ has healed you. Verse 40, but Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed and, and turning to the, to the body, he said, Dorcas, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, raised Dorcas from the dead. Chapters 10 and 11, Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles in Cornelius. And Peter, in chapter 12, here he was, he was imprisoned again. This was the humorous one. Chapters Chapter 12, verse 13. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two, shol- uh, two soldiers and guards before the door were keeping. The old Peter, he would have been frantic, trying to get out of prison. And here he is, asleep, relaxed, within the sovereignty of God. Well, in preview, the Peter that we're going to see in First Peter... When you look at chapter 1, suffering is going to be portrayed. Suffering its of the will of God. We're going to start to see that. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Innocent suffering is commended and commanded from Peter. In chapter 3, suffering is a blessing. Chapter 4, Peter, 1 Peter, suffering is an encouragement. And in chapter 5, it's an experience shared by all believers. After we have suffered... We shall enter into His eternal glory in knowing that God Himself will confirm, strengthen, and establish us. A snapshot of the epistle of 1 Peter. So in closing, the Peter of the Gospels became this transformed Peter of Acts 1 and 2. In the same way that we are transformed, the old and the new. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, New things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Have you trusted in the suffering, death, and the resurrection for our salvation? And if you have, then only then you'll be able to understand the glory of suffering for righteousness' sake and for Christ. You know, when you look now, is that I want you to remember Peter. In these first two weeks of introduction, is that we've unpacked quite a bit about Peter. 
we see so much of him in the, the scripture themselves that reveal about his character. And Peter's life is summed up in many ways in the verses that we find at the end of Second Peter. But grow in grace in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Now you see, I think He would tell you to grow because that's what He did. Let's pray. Father God, thank You so much for our time this morning. Father, Your Word to us, we're just so appreciative of it. And Father, how it just, just works in our hearts and it just speaks so clear to us. Father, we thank You for the Holy Spirit that just gives us that perspective and understanding. Father, I thank You so much for this example of Peter. And we thank You for what we can learn from him. And we thank You for what he learned. Father, we ask You that You would continue to teach us. Teach us from Your Spirit. And Father, that as we continue, that You would bless this study of First Peter. Father, that we as believers, Father, that we would be shaped and refined through this study. Father, we know that You can grow us into a greater grace rather than we are now. And so we just pray that, Father, we will grow continually in the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we give all thanks and praise to You for what He has done for us. Amen.